Thanks so much, Thomas. Uh, so good to be with you. Expert hosting from Thomas, by the way. Um, and really good to be among you this morning. It always is. And uh, I love the life and the vitality that I kind of sense among you. Yes, I am aware the hairdressers have opened again. I just haven't been able to book my appointment. I ran far too, rang far too late and I was given Wednesday evening, which is slightly panicking me slightly. But anyway, um, just take me as I am. Hopefully that's okay uh, as we go this morning. Um, bizarre, in, a, in a kind of strange twist of fate, I think it was about this time last year I preached on this same passage um, in this church building, an empty church building as it was broadcast at various people's homes across Belfast, um, although we're going to take a slightly different kind of direction and theme um, and kind of focus on it this morning, not that I expect that many of you remember it word for word anyway. So, uh, and to begin this morning, what I want to do is actually read a short essay, okay? I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this essay. It's called Welcome to Holland. Uh, It's maybe a strange way to begin a sermon, but uh, hopefully it will become clear as I read this why I think this is relevant at this time but also relevant to this passage that we're going to be in this morning. Um, It was written by Emily Kingsley in 1987 to describe her experience of raising a child with a disability. And uh, hopefully, as I say, its relevance will become clear as you hear it. Welcome to Holland. When you're going to have a baby, it's like planning a fabulous vacation trip to Italy. You buy a bunch of guidebooks and make your wonderful plans. The Colosseum, the Michelangelo David, the gondolas in Venice. You learn some handy phrases in Italian. It's all very exciting. After months of eager anticipation, the day finally arrives. You pack your bags and off you go. Several hours later, the plane lands. The stewardess comes and says, welcome to Holland. Holland, you say? What do you mean, Holland? I signed up for Italy. I'm supposed to be in Italy. All my life I've dreamed of going to Italy. But there's been a change in the flight plan. They've landed in Holland and there you must stay. They haven't taken you to some horrible, disgusting, filthy place. It's just a different place. So you must go out and buy a new guidebook. And you must learn a whole new language. And you will meet a whole new group of people you would never have met. It's just a different place. It's slower paced than Italy, less flashy than Italy. But after you've been there for a while and you catch your breath, you look around and you begin to notice that Holland has windmills, tulips, and Rembrandts. But everyone you know is busy coming and going from Italy. And they're all bragging about what a wonderful time they had there. And for the rest of your life, you will say, yes, that's where I was supposed to go. That's what I had planned. The pain of that will never, ever go away. Because the loss of that dream is a very significant loss. But if you spend your life mourning the fact that you didn't get to Italy, you may never be free to enjoy the very special, the very lovely things about Holland. I'm not sure if you've ever heard that before. Um, I found it quite moving. I heard it a few months ago and I found it really relevant to the times that we were or we are living in and um, quite moving as I say. But I wonder if it summarizes your experiences of the last year or if it speaks to 
maybe in some other way of how your reality hasn't quite matched up to your expectations. Maybe something that you hoped would happen hasn't quite unfolded the way you had hoped. Perhaps you signed up for Italy, but it feels like you've ended up in Holland. In a way, Jesus' disciples might have felt something similar in the aftermath of the resurrection. They had lived their life with Jesus for the last three years. They had some incredible and amazing experiences of life with him. And perhaps they would have been expectant for what was going to happen next with Jesus. But death, crucifixion, hasn't, didn't actually, uh, where events took an altogether different turn. And yes, they witnessed amazing miracles and healing and received incredible teaching from Jesus. But now, with this twist and fork in the road, Jesus gathers his disciples together and begins to tell them, not that he's going to lead them triumphantly towards Jerusalem like they assumed, but instead that he was going to leave them now and that he was going to put the task of his mission into their hands. They had experienced Italy, and it probably felt like they were being abandoned in Holland. But I want us to see today how Jesus' mission would lead them wider and in a whole new direction than what they would have assumed or imagined at that point. I just want to remind ourselves of some of this passage, particularly verses 3 to 8, where it says, After his suffering, Jesus presented to them presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, keyword, witnesses, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Over the next few months, as Thomas said, you as a church are going to journey through the Acts of the Apostles. And I've recently finished, just finished actually reading through a children's version of the book of Acts with Noah, our eldest son. And the book was called Diary of a Disciple. And it gives a short summary narrative of each chapter. And it kind of changes some of the names and gives them nicknames and things like that. But it's pretty good, uh, strange points. But it's been amazing for me to have read through that story with Noah, this book of the Bible with Noah again, and actually see it through a fresh lens. This is a letter written by Luke. Essentially, it's his diary entries. Diary entries from an amazing journey that he went on, personally went on, as a disciple of Jesus himself and a companion of the Apostle Paul. And this is the second of his letters, of his diaries. The first being Luke's gospel, where he had written his eyewitness account of what he had seen Jesus do and heard Jesus say. And Luke is a doctor, And so that 
I think brought a sense of trustworthiness and credibility to his account. Is that right, Ross? Is that what happens when you're a doctor? Who knows? Um, but what is, in, what is inescapable throughout this book is how primarily it is a book about witness. That's the primary emphasis, witness. It's written by an eyewitness. The apostles are all witnesses to what they have seen and heard. And the story is one of witness. It's an outward posture or outward facing book as it tells stories of a church alive that spreads throughout the world but starts where they are in their locality. The church comes alive as they live, as witnesses, because incredible things happen when the message of Jesus goes out. And here, right at the start of Acts chapter 1, these disciples are ready to launch into their mission they followed Jesus for three years. They've seen him rise from the dead and Jesus gathers them for, you know, that final one last team talk before they go out. They were ready to go. But what becomes clear through these verses is that some of Jesus' disciples already had some preconceived ideas of what this mission would look like. And they asked Jesus this kind of weird question to us. And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what becomes clear through this question is that they really had missed a lot of the point. They'd got the wrong end of the stick. Because in their focus was on how Jesus was going to restore the earthly kingdom of Israel. But Jesus' focus was on something much larger, much broader, much more explosive and expansive than that. To put it a different way, the disciples were focused on Italy. And Jesus was leading them to Holland and much further beyond. You see, they were thinking about this single location, this fixed point. But Jesus had on his mind the entire world. He wanted to take them wide. And the question the disciples asked showed how little they grasped actually of the kingdom of God. Was, gonna, was God going to restore things the way they used to be? Would the kingdom of Israel still be at the center of things? They were thinking with an earthly, a territorial, and a political mindset. They assumed that Jesus would restore Israel's kingdom and they wanted answers that would make life more convenient for them or match up to their political preferences. There is such a danger of disciples doing that. There's such a danger when we attach our own political preferences onto Jesus where we assume that Jesus is going to validate our own particular allegiances. It's true, by the way, on the right and on the left. I think it's as relevant in Ireland as it is in America. This movement is not a political or a territorial one, at least not in the way that we understand it. And I'm sure you'll find out more about that on Wednesday night. Jesus was giving his disciples a kingdom vision instead of an earthly mindset. But even more significantly, while the disciples were focused on a specific geographical location, Jesus wanted to give them and provide for them a companion for the journey. Look with me at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, firstly, the disciples were promised a powerful companion who would lead them wider in their mission. Jesus wasn't abandoning them or leaving them on their own. It's so important that we don't miss this, ignore it, or gloss over it. They were given and being given a companion, the Holy Spirit, and we have been given that same companion, the Holy Spirit to help us in our life and to bring power to our, uh, to our mission. Don't neglect him, ignore him, or go without him. He is our source of power, not our intellect, not our achievements, not our accomplishments, but the power of the Spirit. So we've been given a companion for the mission. But secondly, where was the mission to take place? Well, we're told Jesus tells them in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, we're part of this. You're included in that statement by Jesus, that invitation by Jesus. But more than that, Jesus was broadening the vision that they had. This small-minded, territorial and earthly vision, Jesus was blowing that out of the water and expanding their vision. The disciples were asking about the territory of Israel and Jesus was saying that his kingdom wouldn't just unfold in their tiny little region but also throughout the whole of Judea, then to their neighbors in Samaria. And by the way, that bit would have really blown their minds. And then to the ends of the earth. To the 11 that Jesus spoke these words to, it's likely that none of them would have ever been out of their geographical area before. They didn't have passports they weren't widely traveled. And Jesus is saying to you and through you, this message is going to go to the ends of the earth. He's blowing, blowing their expectations and their tiny vision out of the water. And how might he want to do that in our lives? When we arrive like to places like this and the moments of worship we maybe have in our minds the things that we want Jesus to do in our lives. It's like, Jesus, here you can have this part of my life or actually, Jesus, this particular situation, I'd love you to do something with me here or could you use me through this? And Jesus is constantly and continually opening our minds but he's also expanding our vision to see how he wants to work in our lives and also through our lives as well. What happens next through the book of Acts is the unfolding story of this one single verse. The whole book, the whole book can be summarized in this one verse of Acts 1, verse 8. Where we see, no, it doesn't matter. Caleb, you can keep me right. You can find it. Um, where we see that actually from one single verse, the journey that is undertaken throughout the book of Acts. From Acts, 1, from Acts chapter 1 to chapter 7, the story takes place in Jerusalem. Peter preaches to the crowd. He and John heal a lame man at the temple gates. The apostles are brought before the religious leaders. They organize the church and Stephen becomes the first martyr. You're going to go on this journey, but it all happens in the context of Jerusalem. It's a local story. This is captured in Acts 6, 
verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. It's a local picture. The gospel starts where they are. Then right at the start of Acts chapter 8, there's suddenly a dramatic occurrence that takes place. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Sorry, Acts chapter 8 verse 1. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Difficulty and persecution scatter the church and the story now shifts beyond Jerusalem and it, spread, and it focuses on the spread of the gospel in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Only a few verses later in Acts 8 we find Philip proclaiming Christ in Samaria as Jesus had promised, with many Samaritans believing in Jesus. Immediately, the apostles moved through villages throughout Judea, and by the end of the chapter, Philip is baptizing a royal official from Ethiopia. Within a chapter, the story has gone from Jerusalem through into Judea and into Samaria and now the nations. The gospel is going wider and this forms the rest of the book. Acts chapter, chapters 8 to 13 locate the story mostly in Judea and Samaria while much of the rest of the book of Acts is located in what we know as the ends of the earth. As God takes Paul on a dramatic journey beginning on a road to Damascus in, Samaria, in Syria but ultimately moving throughout modern-day Greece, the entire Roman Empire, and ending in Rome itself. The book of Acts is the unfolding movement of the unstoppable mission of God. There are no boundaries. There are no borders. There are no barriers that can contain it or stop it. It's going wide as the church comes alive. But for this morning, for the rest of my time this morning, I just want to look at this promise of Jesus, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Because here we see in this verse, the call to start where they were, and then to see an expansion into the wider region, even encompassing the neighboring region that actually probably would have been considered too hard to reach or even out of bounds before going on to reach the entire world. This was an outward moving mission. Starts where they're located in the city, moves to the surrounding region and it goes to the end of the earth. The location for Jesus' mission is anywhere and everywhere. It's both local and it's global. And what I want you to see this morning is that there are no boundaries and barriers to God's kingdom. There's nowhere off limits and there's nowhere beyond his reach. Psalm 24 says that the whole earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it. That's pretty all-encompassing right there. So when we consider this passage and when you consider this through the book of Acts, we should see that kingdom growth isn't some ambitious desire or fleshly ambition but it comes from the very heart of God for the whole world to know his name. Jesus wants the world to know his name because he has love for the entire world. And so you, you're a church in the heart of the city of Belfast. And it's so important not to miss that, to miss where you are, to miss your location, to miss your city. 
It's so important that you maintain a local and a collective vision for that, to serve God in the city that you are in and the place that you're in and the context around you. These streets and these neighborhoods and these people, we want to have a collective and a local vision for that. But, so yes to that, but it's also so important also to remember that the vision that God has for your own individual life and this church too isn't restricted by borders or boundaries or barriers. God could literally take you as you sit here this morning. He could take you anywhere because his kingdom will go wide and it has no limits. And he invites you to be a part of his expanding vision and mission. And I know that as you apply those words or consider those words for your own individual life, that it's so hard perhaps for you to even believe that right now. Because you might feel like what you're doing, I don't know, nine to five, Monday to Friday, is just so small. It feels so insignificant or it feels so ordinary or maybe even we're so restricted right now and the last year has caused our, I don't know, our vision to actually decrease because we've felt restricted by our current circumstances. But it's important to not limit your vision to what you see now, that you overlook the people outside the walls of this church in this city who need to be reached or that you stop considering the new ground that God wants you to wants to break in the work that you're doing the kingdom of God is an outward moving mission and to say it again he could literally do anything with you and with your life he could take you anywhere in the future to serve him and I meet many and I have met so many young Christians who are just desperate to know where they will end up in 10 years' time. You know, it's like the Christian global ball. Uh, global ball? What's the word I'm looking for? Crystal ball? Wow. Uh, it's like the crystal ball. You know, we kind of get it out, and we're like, where will we be? Where will we end up? And maybe we have some imagination for that, and maybe we pray into that. And that is great, and that is important at times to have that conversation and to, to have the, and to pray those prayers. But you know, I meet so many people who are des so desperate to know where they end up in 10 years' time that they don't pay any attention to the way that they're walking right now. And can I encourage you to not be so focused or even obsessed with your future destination that you don't pay attention to your present direction? As you serve Jesus, you will not always be clear about your future location. Hey, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. But in fact, the future for us is often unclear and unknown. But what is the direction of your life now? Where are you pointed? Where are you heading? Not your destination, where you'll arrive to, as if that's a fixed point, but your direction. Because while we won't always know exactly where we're going, the direction of our life usually will determine our destination. I was talking with one of you here this week about your future plans. What's key is that the purpose and the foundation that you choose to build your life on now 
will actually determine those future steps. Jesus wants to equip and empower every single one of us here this morning to be part of his witness, to share our faith wherever you already are now. But he also wants to take you to new places and to new people and expand your vision of what it might mean to be part of his ever-expanding kingdom. You know, I think of two of our best friends, Stuart and Abby. Stuart did a year-long apprenticeship in HTB Church in London after university. Abby, in her final year at that time of her degree, soon to be married and plugging into a church in London when they were invited to consider going to Malaysia for a year to be part of a team planting a church in Kuala Lumpur. They'd never considered it. It wasn't in their career plan. You know, it didn't come through the tests that they did, you know, in third year in school or year 10 in school, whenever you work out what you're going to be. It was none of their radar or plan. Fast forward seven years and they are both still living there. They are leading significant aspects of a flourishing and growing church. Beyond that, Stuart heads up Worship Central, the whole Worship Central ministry in Southeast Asia, and they are both going through the process to become Anglican ministers there. They both grew up and met each other in a small Baptist church in Balamina. God can take you anywhere. And then there's Caitlin who goes on an Exodus team to Africa about 10 years ago and falls in love not just with the area she visited, but also with the oldest son of the pastor's family. That can happen in mission teams, I'm told. And after a second visit later that year, they establish a relationship. Someone said amen there, didn't they? Um, after a second visit later that year, they establish a relationship and fast forward a decade, Caitlin and Roy are now happily married and living together in Uganda. Caitlin is the principal of a newly established nursery school there and her family back home have been able to establish an incredible fundraising arm for their ministry. Caitlin, student in Glasgow, leading a nursery school near Kampala. And then I think of Clark and Sharon and you know, Morris and Ellie and I think of them happily, you know, moving into retirement and serving in a church in the suburbs of the city. And then they say yes to investing in a group and a generation of younger leaders here in the city. God can take you anywhere. And I don't think we can underestimate what God could do with your life. Do not limit him. But while we might think about that and dream about that in the future, what does that mean for our witness now? Last kind of uh, couple of things. I've got a couple of images here, Caleb, you can maybe flick on to. Um, this image, this image um, I came across a few years ago, and it's perhaps how many of you, many people view the church. We're the red dots in the corner, aren't we? Pushed back into the corner of a world increasingly uninterested in God, huddled together, holding on to who we are, desperately shining our light in the corner of a world full of gray, trying to draw others in. That's our way to view the church. But this next image is another way. The same number of red dots, this time scattered among the gray. Individuals in all different walks of life, among people in the midst of workplaces and sports clubs, on the bus or at the school gate, interacting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Little red dots. And there's two dangers with this diagram. 
The two dangers. The first danger is that the red dots don't realize the significance of where they are. They don't realize actually that they could be part of the witness of the dots around them where they are. They don't see significance in their office place or in their place of work or at the school gate. They don't see significance in their sports team or in the way they spend their leisure time or in the coffee shops that they frequent. And the second danger, the second danger is that the red dots begin to gray out and just become like everyone else around them. Alan Scott once said that modern discipleship has focused on making believers strong enough to survive the culture instead of being bold enough to transform it. We want to reach wider, but Jesus wants everyone to play. There's no such excuse as, God, you can't use me because I'm just a fill-in-the-blank. He wants, he invites us all to join and be part of the kingdom of God that has no boundaries, no barriers, and no borders. To invite us in, to develop a kingdom vision, to rely on the companion who will give you the power to be his witnesses and to give you a vision, give you a mindset for an ever-expanding kingdom.